just made connections. I made friendships. I networked and people remembered me and they called me and I just kept hustling to the next job, to the next job, to the next job. Next thing you know, I graduated film school. I'm already in with Civil Side Records. You got to think mm -hmm. about the timing. You got to thank God mm -hmm. for this. Time. I got to give God the glory. Here I am graduating in the summer of 2001. I, I done made a good name for myself on a production assistant level in the industry. And I'm with the hottest label in the South at that time. Civil Side Records in 2001 when Trick Daddy had Take It To The House out, had I'm A Thug out. Uh, he had... Um, all these big records out. I'm already in with the I'm their guy. So now I'm meeting these new big directors that's doing these big videos for them now, making friends with them. And then next thing you know, I get an opportunity to do a music video, not with Trick, but with somebody else because of my, excuse me, because of my relationship with Trick Daddy and Suicide. It was like, well, hey, can you come do a video for us? And that was O2. <laughs> Man, today, my brother, thank you for coming all the way from Miami. Because you know, funny thing is about my people that live in Miami, they tell me it's so far. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, I go to Miami every week, like, it's a regular ride. I was yeah, there I yesterday, but when I tell somebody from Miami to come up there, like, this Palm Beach, <laughs> what? I'm not coming all the way up here. Man. So, when, when, when I told you to come up, you were like, I'm on it, I'm with you, let's get it done. Yep. So, but when you heard Palm Beach, that's when you got a little uncomfortable. <laughs> be honest with me. I was like, oh, you on West Palm Beach. Uh, uh, okay. I'm going to schedule right. a whole day for this. Basically. Listen, you got to realize from being a Miami dude, born and raised, and I'm from the south side of Miami. I'm from the Palmetto Bay, Kendall. All the way in the bottom. Cutler Ridge area. So, And this is like coming to Orlando. Oh, right my now. This is like you're coming to Orlando right you now. Basically, you're all the way in Orlando right now. <laughs> basically. Basically. You got the terror. So today we have my, my my people's man, a good brother of mine from the industry, um, Antoine Smith. Any middle name you want me to put in there, Antoine? Or just Antoine. A a Antoine Smith is good Antoine enough. Smith. I don't want to give you a whole government. Huh? <laughs> exactly. Um, this brother's been in the production, film, um, music videos, whatever, whatever in the in that space for how long, Antoine? I've been doing this professionally, you know, as far as getting paid to be a director since 2002, but I've been in the industry as a production assistant since 1997, so about 25 years. 25, you did 25 you did a years. whole bit in this industry, it, and it's, still going. It's still going. Um, Antoine actually is the director, producer of the Trick Daddy show. Um, bitch, I got my pots. Bitch, I got my pots. So yeah. we ain't gonna start there. So let's go all the way from the bottom. Um, you, so you are born and raised in Miami. Yeah, born and raised in Miami. I'm from a community called uh, West Perrine. And that's just um, uh, below Kendall, but before Homestead. And uh, born and raised, grew up there, loved my community. And um, uh, I, I've always uh, appreciated the community I grew up in just because of the, the people I went to school with. And 
the people that I had around me, my the neighbors, culture. The culture. That's the word I'm looking for. The, the culture. culture down there. So born and raised with who? Are you born and raised with your mom and dad or? Yeah. Listen, um, basically, um, I had my mom and dad together since uh, up until I was about 10 years old. And my parents, they split up to, uh, yeah, my, they split up around when I was 10 years old. And then I had my grandmother and my dad raising me up because my mom moved to Georgia. Okay. And um, so I had the- Brothers, uh, sisters? I, I do have one sister. Uh, she lives in Atlanta, Georgia now, Angel. Angel's about maybe 23, 24 right now. She was a late bloomer, but- um, Right, 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 right. I, I, I love her to death and- um, you know, So you grew up with- you were as the only child until 10 years I, old. I was the only child oh, the until I was one. in my 20s. Until, oh, until gosh. 20s. One of the spoiled ones. Um, but how was it living with both parents in that home? You know, how, how, what, what did that feel like? I'm going to tell you something. You know, my, my mom was about, uh, about almost 10 years younger than my father. So I, I grew up having with a young mother you know she was a young mother and she took me everywhere she went to the movies grocery shopping hanging out with you her girlfriend dated a lot basically and my dad you know he was always a disciplinary and he worked and did his thing as a father and um uh i never had a, I had a fun childhood fun child, up until the mid 80s when my parents uh split separated up. yeah well give me that outcome how, how did that affect you i'm gonna tell you something being 10 years old and seeing your mom and your dad kind of fuss and fight a little bit leading up to that and then find out they're going to get a divorce, it only affected me in a sense that, damn, now I have to go, you know, see my mom. She first moved up to Liberty City before she moved to Georgia. So now every weekend I have to now leave where I live at to go see her. And that was the only thing that affected me because, you know, I love being around my friends. Yeah, I love being my, around my friends. I love seeing my mom and dad together because that's what I grew up the first 10 years seeing. So it was a little bit of a, a change. difficult uh, challenge. So did you, so you said you were raised by your father. And my grandmother. Your father, your grandmother. Yeah, father, yeah. Well, what type of um, relationship did you and your grandmother have? Oh, man, my grandmother, she was my mother. She was my part-time dad. She was everything. I had a great relationship with her. And she made sure I had everything I needed. I never, you know, listen, I would like to say we were middle-class black folks, but even we weren't, let's just say we were poor, my, my grandmother never let me feel that. She never, never. She was always there. I was always there. I had everything I needed growing up, and then I had my father, which a lot of kids at that time, due to drugs and it being the mid eighties, late eighties, you know, fathers weren't in these kids' lives. I still had my dad, and to make sure I stay in school and do the right thing, and I had my grandmother filling in the void of my mom. So, do you think that is a big foundation of who you are today? Absolutely, because I grew up in the neighborhood. The Prime was it was sort of kind of a war zone. Sometimes during during the eighties because of the drug era and the crime during the late eighties, but like I say, you know, my grandmother, my father, I was shielded from all that stuff. I grew up in a nice house in West Moran, and I had everything. I got a bike. I had good Christmas. I had everything I needed in life. So that definitely shaped me to who I who I am now. It kept me off the streets. So so growing up in Miami in the uh, late eighties. Early eighties, late eighties, when you know when your family adjusted, did you guys stay down in Peron for that time? Yeah, yeah, you guys I, stay down there. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. My father, my grandmother, all, all like I say, everyone was kind of based in the Peron area. So I grew up in Peron. I didn't move from the Peron area till I till I turned about maybe 18, 19 years old when I was in film school. I got my own apartment in Cutler Ridge, which is five minutes away right, right, right. from Peron. 
So, but how was the culture there? How was the culture like? You know, you spoke yeah. about how much that influenced you. Speak a little bit about the culture in that area. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you something. For one, like we, like I said, we were we were that little small community down south. You know, because basically everybody know about Liberty City and Brownville or Brown Sub and all those areas. But Perrine, we was our own little Iraq down there. It was <laughs> it was a little crazy. Um, but all the neighbors knew each other. And it was, it was that old saying how the neighbors could whoop you if you're doing something bad. And um, but and, and they would do that. And like the culture just was good. I mean family. I, yeah. You know? Well, it's family. Yeah. So, so then you decide to go to film school. Like, what? How did you even get to that point? Good question. Um, I'll give you a short version. You know, my memory as a child go back as far as I was three years old. I can actually remember what I was doing when I was three years old. Not two, wow. not one, but three years old. So, my parents used to take me to see R-rated movies when I was about four years old. Like, you know, <laughs> you know they ain't no babysitter. So I remember going 1980. I remember going to see Richard Pryor's uh, 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 when he was a race car driver, Busting Loose. Oh, I seen Busting Loose and the one where he was a race car driver back in the early 80s. And I was like four years old, five years old. One of those films, I was five years old. And I remember like just enjoying these R-rated movies. <laughs> <laughs> and then remember early 80s, this was to turn the introduction of cable TV. So... You know, my family being the way we were, you know, we weren't poor. You know, we had a few dollars. We got cable. We had cable since like 1981, 82. We had a little big-ass big box, everything. <laughs> and I'm watching like HBO. I'm watching the movie channel. I'm watching all these premium cable channels in 1981, 82. Every day after school, you know, uh, I, I used to be home alone on the student, uh, the teacher's work day. You know, I didn't go to no babysitter. My, them the days you, you stay you home. You figure it out. And I grew up loving movies because I, I had access to it as a child. So so then you decided at 18 to go, what film school did you go to? I went to a school uh, in, in uh, downtown Miami uh, called uh, Miami International University of Arts and Design. It's uh, owned by the Art Institute right now. And um, I, know I graduated uh, when I was 18 years old. I didn't go to film school to to about a year and a half later. I took like a year off from school and I entered school. I graduated in 1994. I didn't enter school until about uh, the winter of 97. And- um, Did you knew already from back then you wanted to do this? Yeah, I'm gonna tell you, just to take it back just a little bit. I knew in high school when I was about 11th grade that I wanted to be somewhat in the film industry because we had an assignment where we had to- do a play, and I was the an actor in it, and I thought I was gonna be an actor because I wanted to be an actor. But then we did one exercise where, okay, you be the director, and you direct this actor over here, and I did it, and I just loved like you know mimicking what I would see on TV. Like, okay, you do this and you do that. I just love it. And from eleventh grade on to when I graduated in twelfth grade, I was like, you know what? I want to go into the film industry. I didn't want to be nothing else but a director since I was eleventh grade. Wow. Yeah. So, and then right when you were done with film school, did you get right into the industry or? Yeah, I did. Um, like I say, I graduated in 94. Um, I was already honing my craft as a filmmaker in 95, 96, doing home movies. And one of my best friends loaned me $400 to go buy the big box camera, <laughs> home entertainment, go buy Walmart or Kmart at the time. And I spent about two summers just playing with that camera, just honing my film skills. And then in um, 96, I applied for college. 
Got in and uh, the summer, I went, uh, January 97 was the winter semester. I entered in the winter semester, never looked back. So with the, basically you already knew what you wanted to do. You was already passionate about it. You knew you needed to invest in it right away. Right. Like what was that mindset had to be like for you to do all that? Well, at the time I didn't have any sense of urgency because I'm just a young kid. I'm 18, 19, going on maybe 20 years old at the time. Well, about 20 years old at the time because I took a couple years off. <clears throat> and it was no sense of urgency. Like, you know, I just know when I got in film school, I was going to try to soak up all the knowledge that I can because I just wanted to be just like Spike Lee. And I know he went to, you know, Morehouse and he went to uh, New York University. And I just know, look, I just want to get all my education so I can learn to be as good as Spike Lee. So, so how did he become your ideal person that you want to be like? Good question. Because when I started falling in love with cinema, like at least being a filmmaker, excuse me, in high school, I don't know. All I knew was Spike Lee. Like I knew it was other black film directors, but I grew up watching do the right thing in 89. I, I remember going to see jungle fever in 91, you know, and Mo better blues in 1990. So I only really knew Spike Lee. And I was like, look, this is the guy I want to be like. So that's why he became the standard and the motivation. So is that an important thing that also got you to another level was finding somebody that you could look into, look up to, and be that ideal person for you? Absolutely, because Spike Lee set the standard very high. So when you're trying to be as good as your idol, you have to hone your skills and be just as good as him. And, and that definitely was my motivation and why I paid attention to school. So then... Like, what did you start doing right after you fell? You know, Spike Lee's that guy. Right. Well, I know the next step was school, but then within school, what did you start doing? Okay, good question. I went to school, you know, most, I know a lot of kids went to the big University of Miami, was playing hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to school. My school was a small college, but they wanted to mimic University of Miami so bad. So we, they would put us in the field to go do short films. They would assign us thesis films and, you know, to go, go make a little mini movie for a grade. So this is how I started honing my skills is through my college. They would tell us to go do three short films this semester. You're going to get graded. So they would teach us how to do this stuff and we'd study our book work and they'll say, okay, you got to go do your short films. So I was really learning how to be a filmmaker from like my first year in film school. I was honing my skills. And on top of that, I have to give credit to music videos. I'm a big BET MTV advocate since I was a kid. So I really learned filmmaking, not just doing it in film school, by watching BET and MTV, you know, Rap City and, you know, whatever it was out at the time, TRL or Rap City at the time. And that helped me be a great filmmaker because I was watching many short films on TV every day, AKA music videos. So. So, and even that, because that's not, you don't, you know, that's not around as much as right. before. Right. You know, probably on YouTube, you're able to watch it. Yep. But was there any other influence other than Spike Lee within the school? Was there a teacher that really held you down or your circle? You guys locked in as a group to actually start actually activating that that in your life? I have to. Oh, that's a great question. I have to say that was one teacher, Mr. Ernest Goodley. And I hope we get to see this podcast episode. He was you send it to him. Yeah, he was. Uh, he became my second year of film school. He became the head of the film department, and this was an African American teacher who had done film and been successful in it. And I'm gonna tell you something. For being one of the 
I was one of those, you know, it was probably like me and maybe three other black people in the class of a class of 20-something students. He was very hard on me. And he challenged me because it was times where he knew I had greatness in me, but I was sometimes a little mediocre in the work I would turn in and some of the and uh, some of the outcomes of some of my short films when he knew I could be better. So he was like, yo, I turned him in some, a film, short film that was crap. He let me know it was crap. He's not going to be like, oh, don't worry, brother. Do a better job next time. He'll say, hey, this is garbage. You know, you could write better than that. You can write stuff without putting curse words, so many curse words in it. You know, you can stay after school and learn how to work your camera better. And he challenged me. So I have to credit him on me taking film school even more serious and wanting to be better like when I came out. So speak about that challenge. I think a lot of people dislike challenges, mm-hmm. but speak on a little bit about how important that challenge was for you and how you got better from being challenged. Well, you know, other than my film school challenges I, I got from Mr. Goodley, um, when I came out of film school, you know, I'm not a, a, a you know a white film filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker coming out of USC, so I don't have Warner Brothers waiting for me to get them my short film so they can give me a job. When I come out of school, I'm not in Hollywood. I'm in Miami, Florida. There's no scene out here. There's no Hollywood out here at that time. So the only way to get on is you have to go knock down the doors of some record labels that'll maybe let you come on board and shoot some music videos for them. And I got lucky while I was in school. I was I wrote letters. Um, to Luke Records, I wrote letters to Slip and Side Records. Um, I even wrote records to um, uh, my man um, Frank Murray. He had a, a label. He's actually from Carver Ranches. He had a label. Um, now forgive me, Frank, for not remembering the label, but they were do, making a lot of noise. He was like becoming a little mini Master P out here. So I wrote letters to all these people. Said, "Hey, um, I'm in my third year of film school. Wrote letters. I'm, yeah, yeah, real letters. Oh, 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 what's no type of computer right. sending email? Clear, no, we writing real letters." Licking the, the envelopes, putting the stamp on there, we mailing it. You definitely, you definitely old, Anthony. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but I wrote letters, and look, these people hit me back. I spoke to all three people. I got to meet Luke. I got to talk to Frank Murray. You know, people from his office did call me back, but it was Slip and Slide Records that hit me back and say, I'll tell you what, come into the office uh, uh, on this day. And when I come into the office on this day, this is like November 1998. I done wrote 100 letters over the, over the whole summer and early fall. Before you finish that oh, story, I want go you ahead. to, not because I think it's a good story, but yeah. that process yeah. of yeah. finding a way by all means necessary. Yeah. Like, because I, I want you to speak on that because I think that grind and that testimony, the testimony in that, I really think very few know that process today yeah. of finding a way. Could you talk on that? Yeah, basically, listen. You're in the industry where there's, uh, you know, 2,000 directors, there's 2,000 writers, there's 5,000 actors. You have to come out there and want to go get it because nobody's going to really give it to you. And that's a true statement. Like, it's 2,000 to me when I'm graduating from film school, so I have to go out there to go get it. it. Some people say, I don't have money for college, so I can't go to film school. Good. Okay, no problem. Just Grab your camera. Now you can grab your iPhone. You can make a movie on your iPhone. You can edit on your iPhone. I mean, I've seen some incredible iPhone music videos. And you have to go do it. You have to go create the content and find a way. And and if you don't, you're going to be left behind. And 
Oh, go ahead, go ahead. So when you got to Slip and Slide Record, what did you start doing? Yeah. Oh. They said, come in one day. You just... I came in one day, and they was like, yo, we're getting ready to shoot this music video uh, um, um, next month, and um, you can come intern for us, meaning work for free. That video was uh, 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 Trick Daddy's uh, You Don't Know Nan video with Trina, the one that, his breakout record. So I, I'm sitting in a production meeting in the office in like late November, where they got the director on a conference call and I got Ted Lucas and a whole bunch of people in the office where they're just talking about the concept at the Off time. Off of one letter. Off of one letter. And I basically came to the office in November 98 and I didn't leave until two, about 2004. <laughs> so that yeah. opportunity, yeah, wow, that's powerful. Yeah. So getting that opportunity from you just believing, but they didn't even offer you money. Nope. They said you can work for free. And I What said, made you stay? I'm going to tell you something. I wanted it bad. Like, I, listen, I didn't care about no money. I just wanted to be on set. I know I wasn't directing, but I wanted to be close enough to the director where I can watch the process to see how do they make these movies, how do they do these music videos, how do I see what I see on MTV. And it, I was cool with that. And I knew I had to pay some dues. And I paid my dues, and here I am, 25 years later, 24 years later, um, Talking to you. Still your I, client. I, yeah, still my client. Talking to you, doing what I love to do. Just make movies. So that's crazy. So you, because you're still working with Trick Daddy today. So today. you went from a letter, yeah. working for free, to still servicing him yeah. from that from that foundation. I think that's so important because I think that's yeah. a lost thing. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot of interns or, you know, everybody believe the moment they buy a camera, they're the biggest and the baddest right away, which we clearly we know that's not true. I, absolutely. Um. So so go ahead, keep on going with it with the yeah. um, working and, at Yeah. And really before I even got the opportunity, I was a production assistant, meaning I was just a little helper or a little runner on music videos. I got the opportunity to work on the Will Smith Welcome to Miami video. Um we shot that Labor Day weekend, nineteen ninety eight. That was September before my Sydney Slide meeting. How was and, that experience? Man, listen, can you imagine your first big music video you working with Will Smith. How'd you even get into that? Uh, because um, what I did was uh, when I got into being a production assistant, assistant, a friend of mine introduced me to some people at a production company called South Beach Productions. Um, Joyce Behar, which is still a good friend of mine, she's one of the producers over there. And I and I just went over there, let her know, hey, I'm in film school. You guys ever need some production assistants? Call me. And listen, not only they call me for a lot of their their music videos, some of the people that worked on those jobs went to do big, big, bigger jobs. And they would call me and say, Torn, hey, I'm working on this, uh, 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 this Jay-Z video. I'm working on this um, Will Smith video. Are you available? Oh, I'm available. And I was able to get on the Will Smith video and I was his driver for like three days. You know, I was his driver. To, to me, I think one, yeah. of, one of the things that inspire, is inspired me in your process. Yeah. So you left school as a director, producer. Yeah. You had that degree or that certificate yeah. to say that yeah. you didn't have to humble yourself down mm -hmm. and ask to help to bring value that's right like speak about that and when did how did did someone tell you need to do that or you just knew in order for me to you just want to get an opportunity yeah I'm gonna tell you something this whole business is about relationships I kind of learned that on learned that early on in maybe 1997 when I started being a production assistant, you have to make friends with your crew members because your crew members go off to work other jobs after the job that you're on. And I just learned early on, you're going to go a long way 
if you're a good person and if you make contacts. And I was making, I was networking hard with all my coworkers and they were calling me. Hey, I know this nice kid. He works hard. Let's bring him on to this Jay-Z video. I got a chance to work with Jay-Z in, in uh, uh, late uh, 1998. He did a video with Timberland out here called Lobster and Scrimp. You can look that up on YouTube. It's called Lobster and Scrimp, not Shrimp. And uh, we did that video December of 1998. I remember. And I'm Working with Jay-Z, I got on that job, not because they they knew to call me in the production. Somebody who I work with said, hey, I know a kid who work hard, he got a good attitude, call him. And they called me, and now I'm working with Jay-Z. And um, and went on to work with the same production company. They did a DMX video um, the next month, that January of 99. And um, I went on to work with Whitney Houston. I did a Whitney Houston video as a production assistant that was January 1999, the Heartbreak Hotel that, that was shot here. With Kelly Price and um, Faith Evans. So you just kept on rolling in. Kept rolling. Yeah. All from the first relationship, the first sacrifice. And yep. you just, yep. when did you start making the money in that process? Okay. Were you getting paid already in that process? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started getting paid around the Will Smith video. I think, you know, you know, production assistants, you know, back then they were making like 150 bucks. And I and I worked for like three days plus overtime. So I I made this, I made about five, six, seven hundred bucks with overtime off that Will Smith video. And that was a lot of money for me in ninety eight. And um I just kept And doing what you love. And doing what I love. And from that point on, I was getting paid because Everybody remember me from the Will Smith video. So now these production companies are now calling me for the other big ones that they're doing in Miami. And they just kept going, kept going. But at this time, I'm not making money as a film director because I'm still in school. I didn't graduate to 01. And now in 2001, after I get my, my degrees. So you was just, you were still a student. I was still a student. That's what I'm trying to say. Wow. I was still a student this whole time. I'm still a student up until the summer of 2001. So nobody told you, hey, Antoine, you need to go work here or do this. You already knew in your mind, I want to be in this position. Yep. I'm going to find a way to just hustle my way in that. Basically, you hit it on the nose. I just made connections. I made friendships. I networked. And people remembered me. And they called me. And I just kept hustling to the next job, to the next job, to the next job. Next thing you know, I graduated film school. I'm already in with Silver Slide Records. You got to think mm -hmm. about the timing. You got to thank God mm -hmm. for this. I got to give God the glory. Here I am graduating in the summer of 2001. I, I done made a good name for myself on a production assistant level in the industry. And I'm with the hottest label in the South at that time. Silver Slide Records in 2001 when Trick Daddy had Take It To The House out, had I'm A Thug out. Uh, he had... Um, all these big records out. I'm already in with the I'm their guy. So now I'm meeting these new big directors that's doing these big videos for them now, making friends with them. And then next thing you know, I get the opportunity to do a music video, not with Trick, but with somebody else because of my, excuse me, because of my relationship with Trick Daddy and Suicide. It was like, well, hey, can you come do a video for us? And that was 02. I did a video for, uh, uh, a little, um, the boy band thing was really big in the early 2000s. And I did a, a video for a, a boy band group. I can't remember their name. And the video came out okay, but it was my introduction. You're honest, boy. Yeah, it was my introduction to directing and getting paid for it. And um, I never looked back. What was the process like? So how do you start to, fin you know, to finish a yeah. production's, I mean, a director 
a music video? Well, basically, you know, music videos are easy. You know, um, basically it starts out with just listening to the song. And sometimes the artist will give you an idea, like, hey, this is what I'm thinking for a visual for the song. You take that, put it to paper and the concept, give it back to them, let them approve it. Once they approve it, you budget it out. You set how many days it's going to take to shoot, and you basically go shoot it. It's an easy process, but the scary part is just getting on set. Once you're on set and you got 20 crew members, you got the artists. Because everything's on you. Yeah, everything's on me. You cannot mess up because these music videos back then, it wasn't such thing as doing a video for $5,000 in 2001 or 2002. People were spending fifteen, twenty thousand, dollars and you know, that was considered low budget back then, like if they're going to give you a low budget video. And, and really, to be honest with you, $250,000 in 2001 was considered a low-budget video. Like, if you got approved for a $250,000 video, people laughed at you. Like, that's all they gave you? Can you imagine a quarter of a million dollars being considered low-budget? So you had a lot of money that the label gave you to produce their video. And, man, it was a lot of pressure on a young director just coming out of film school. But I, 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 I managed through it. So when did it start going to the different budgets from the 25000 to... Oh, man. So when's the first one that you got a real number in? It wasn't until, remember, I've been having Sipping Slides since 98, making my bones, graduating the old one. I didn't really start getting the big budgets until 2007. This is when Sipping Records introduced me to Plies, the rapper. This is when they was launching his project. And they did a one, they did a couple of small videos with him that did well. And then he, his record started, his buzz started to get bigger when him and T-Pain came out, came out with a record called Shardy. And after Shardy, they wanted to, he, Plies wanted to do another record that the label didn't really want to pay for, but it was a good street record. So Ted was like, all right, Twan, we ain't, I got to pay for this. We ain't got no money, but he want to do this record. Don't mess up. So they give us $15,000, which, you know, it's not a lot of money. But we take that 15 grand, we go shoot a record called 100 Years. If you Google that, it's like, we probably got 20 million views on that. That was like, that was a record that made Ply's first record move. Shardy did his thing to give him a buzz and he got some good first week numbers. But when 100 Years dropped, the streets really was like, okay, I mess with this guy Ply's. So, and, and so to stay on that topic, you guys affect records sales. Oh, absolutely. Listen, I messed with Plies. I just saw Plies, you know, at the Trick Daddy 25th anniversary concert we did back in um, August. And him and I just joked about it. Like, I always remind him, like, Plies, you only got that gold record from the your, the the, um, the Testament. That's the first album called The Testament because I did that 100 Years video for you. Just want to be clear. Because when we dropped the video, you know when a record come out, you get the big first week and it just keep decline, decline, decline. That was, Shardy came out before the record dropped, before the album dropped. So The single. Time, yeah, the single. So by the time the record come out, it did the numbers it was going to do. It was going to go down, go down. We did 100 Years video. We dropped the video. It wasn't a record on the radio. We dropped the video. Sales started going up, and he got his gold album. It went up after we dropped 100 Years video. Not the single. It was never a single. The video. And um, Plies owed me one. Yo, you were absolutely. <laughs> and he was a lawyer, you do. I did a lot of records with Plies. I got to give them to him. We, 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 did, we have a good chemistry. He's a crazy dude. I love him to death. And he challenges you, too, to be great. You know, he's not going to just give you his money and say, go shoot. 
He's going to make sure you're on point. And that's why I love him, man. So then budget started growing and you started doing more shows. So after that, yeah. what kind of, um, were you doing film now or was more music yeah. videos then? Yeah, we yeah we kind of bounced around on timeline. But before I get up to Plaza in 2007, I graduated film school in 01. And like I said, because I had a good, ad, a good reputation on the streets and people know my work ethic, I got an opportunity to do a little small movie called Bloodline. Um friend of mine named Fence uh, over at Icons Music Group um, wanted to do a, uh, a movie about, you know, um, uh, two brothers. They get split up. One become a cop. One become a drug dealer. And they um, run into each other as adults and, and clash. And 2003, he was like, look, let's, I want to I write this movie. And so I co-wrote the script with him. We shot the movie in 2004 and we did some pickup shots in 05. And, you know, we put the movie out in 05. Uh, um, um, we screened it and man it become an instant classic like not my favorite movie but people love Bloodline it's called Bloodline the Sibling Rivalry the, the storyline was good yeah the story people love that storyline and we 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 had bids from Universal Pictures not to put it in theaters but to do the home entertainment so that's when VHS and DVDs were big and we had majors coming out there saying okay we see this buzz we hear about this buzz let's do a deal and we end up going with Cold Black Slash Universal, Cold Black is the production company that did the Tupac movie back in 2016, 17, whenever it came out. And they had a partnership with Universal Home Entertainment Division. And we went with them and the movie came out and uh, got re-released in 2007. And um, we just did the 15th year anniversary back in um, uh, first week of September of the film being released. So, so that's, how, that's amazing. I think now, right now, well... Go a little backwards still, staying at um, 2001, 2007, and on, ongoing. So what's some of the names that you work with that really was like, man, I got something from this that actually shifted things for you? Well, I got to say Plies. Plies, doing the Plies videos really shifted. How many Plies videos did you do? We I did about seven videos. I can't name them all, but we did, we did about at least seven videos. Plies would do a lot of... Video street videos with me that's not going to be recent as singles come out as singles. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot that didn't really hit MTV, but we did a lot that he would put out independently mm -hmm. on his MySpace at the time and YouTube page. But um, the 100 Years video was a big turning point for my career because then remember this is 2007. Ross Rick Ross who was signed to Seven Side Records. I met Ross. I will do the Ross story later. But he started although I know him for since. 01 at the time, he didn't really, you know, when it's time to do music videos, he was using Gil Green and people, big directors like mm -hmm. that, that was established. After he saw the 100 Years video, even Ross hit me up and was like, okay, like, we need to do something. And we ended up doing like two or three, we did, me and Ross did like two or three videos from his uh, Triller album that came out in 08, because remember, 07 is when me and Plaza was blowing up. So 08, Ross releases Triller. I do about three videos off there. Uh, I think one of them was a single. The other one was just street videos that label wanted to put out. And um, I, I just took off from there. Then I started doing videos with Trina, you know, because I'm blowing up with Plies. So now I said, I was like, okay, Tuan, here goes some Trina videos. And that's when shit, excuse me, that's when, thing, yeah, that's when things started to turn after the Plies 100 Years video. That's one thing. That's when, that's when the label started calling me, not just Slip Inside mm -hmm. Records. Atlantic Records was calling me to do videos for other artists. And by the time you and I met, 
I'm working with Chris Brown at the time. You know, I'm I'm getting uh, that's why I met you at the set of Chris Brown. Set with of Chris Mills. Brown, like and Jay Mills. Jay Mills was signed to Young Money when Young Money was at the peak of his um, popularity. So this is what happened when I did the 100 Years video. By the time you met me, I'm now doing videos with Cash Money, with Jay Mills and Chris Brown. And um, so, and even yeah. that that experience alone, Antoine, I want you to speak a yeah. little about for people that's in the industry that. It's going to be inspired by this content. Yeah. Like, speak about what a day looked like in a large set. Because from what I remember, <laughs> you had so many different pieces. Because you guys had, yeah, from the models coming in to spot yeah. or people that want people to wear their product. Oh, to, <laughs> it, Like, it was so many different pieces. And, like, what is... Yeah. Like, what does a set look like for a day? Because it wasn't, oh, it was a regular, it was from like yeah. 8 a.m. to yeah. like 2, 3 in the morning. Oh, but you was there. Uh, yeah. I was a lot. I want to say my man, my man B, he was there. Um, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give it to you in a quick 60-second nutshell. Like, on a video of that magnitude where you got Chris Brown and Jay Mills and superstars on set like that, you're going to be in for a 14-hour day. I mean, a straight 14-hour day with one half-hour lunch break, not an hour. One half, one half hour lunch break. So, yeah, we're going to start, you know, sometimes 6 in the morning for the sake of math. We start 6 in the morning. And, listen, we you got 20 crew members, sometimes 30 crew members. Then you have the artists and their entourage slash management slash record label um, people coming to the set. So you got to deal with another at least 15 people. And then you have to manage the talent that's coming on set, models and actors and all of that stuff. So you can deal with all that the first three hours of, of your day. And then everything else is just shooting, setting up, dealing with the artists. These artists, these guys are superstars. You know, they they not really, uh, don't really enjoy the process of sitting on a set for 14 hours. So you have to manage that, you know. And it's straight shooting, 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 moving lights around, shooting, 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 moving lights around, get your half hour break. And then... um. Hopefully, if the artist, you know, isn't pissed off by that last three or four hours of the shoot, you finish your shootout, uh, you shoot, and um, hopefully you don't run into too much overtime, and uh, you wrap up, go home, and 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 maybe have to do it again the next day because some of these videos back then were not just one day shoots like they are now. Sometimes you shoot for two straight days or three days in a row. So uh, that's that's crazy to me. Yeah, because they why you know everybody had to sit on the set. Because yep. then you got to shoot B-roll content. That's right. From the beginning, and yeah. then the superstars come on and all that. Absolutely. So in the, in that process, you have like when in the man your twenty man crew as a director, you have production. Yeah. You have like what's some of the positions you have in that set? Yeah, I name some. You know, and sometimes sometimes a position it takes two or three people. Like you know, you got myself. You got the assistant director. You got the producer. You got a production coordinator. The coordinator would be somebody you might have spoke to when you got there. You want to know where to park. You want to know where can you put your camera gear. Where can you sit down? That production coordinator will tell you that. Um, you you got the cameraman, aka the DP. You got the assistant cameraman. You got the grips, the electrics, the swing, the production assistant. You got hair and makeup. I think I'm. You got to manage all that. You got to manage all that. I just think and stay in budget. And, and stay in budget. And I think I just named off the 15 people already, and I just half the people already. You wow. know, so it's it's a lot of positions um, that got to get filled on bigger videos, and you have to manage all of that. So, but do you, 
you don't bring all 20 if it's not as big as a video not, or as big as a... That's correct. Yeah, sometimes uh, you may do a small music video where you only need maybe 10 crew members. Yeah, it all depends on the size and budget of the production. The video you and I, that you came on to, yeah, we had Chris Brown, so we got to have, yeah, we have to move fast. It was Chris, crazy. Yeah, Chris Brown's not here to be sitting for 12 hours. Chris Brown here to, to work three or four hours, and he, he needs to get out of there. So you have to have that manpower to move through your sets fast, light them, put them lights up fast. So, so, so main, so going after the the Chris Brown video, you kept on growing and creating other content. Now, is it videos you love more, or is film creating more, you know, content as far as film production? Good question. Well, when I graduated film school, and when I was a kid, and when I was in high school. You know, my goal was to always be Spike Lee. Spike Lee mostly did movies, so my goal was to always do movies. Music videos fell into my lap as a uh, a road to do music videos, but what happened, to do movies. What happened was I actually kind of fell in love with music videos. It's something fun about being able to do a short film. That's what I would call music videos at the time. Every week, I get to make a mini movie every week and make a lot, a lot of quick money. And I fell into that music video trap for about a decade where I wasn't really pursuing movies. I was just racking up all these music videos. I mean, I've worked with everybody from Diddy. I done been on set with Jay-Z. I done did, me and Timberland done did some projects together. I, I mean, I've been with every artist I grew up watching, idolizing. I had the chance to work with them on the music video. So how do you walk away from that? So I got trapped. So now I'm in my 40s. <laughs> I got trapped. <laughs> I got trapped. So now I'm in my 40s and... um. The last um, five years or so, I done rediscovered my passion for feature films. So, you know, I've had a chance to do a couple of films since um, um, in the last five years. And um, that's where I'm headed to now. Like, you know, right now, I don't do as much music videos as I used to because I've been focusing on my feature films. I shot two last year and we've been editing all year long. And um, I got another million dollar movie that we have uh, coming up. Uh, we're going into pre-production for another month and a half called Suddenly Single. And um, I, I got another project uh, next year uh, uh, that I'm in prep for with uh, Rapper Cameron. And I just, I got a lot of movies coming up the next three years. years. So and yeah. within that, um, creating these films. Yeah. After not even just the videos and the film, so after you shoot it, you now got to sit in the editing room, yeah, and direct that. What's that process oh, like? Oh man, I'm gonna tell you something. Man. I'm gonna tell you something. Being on set for 12, 14 hours shooting a movie, you know, people may think that's hard work. That's easy for me. I love being on set, so that's not work. Sitting in an edit session for fourteen hours in a room just like this, closed off, soundproofed. And you sitting there for about eight hours a day watching take after take after take. It's it's not easy. It's not easy as you may think. That's and what they don't know. Yeah, post-production is the ugliest part of, I would say, of, of the film process. But, you know, um, once the movie starts to come together and you got you, you get to see the the fruits of your, your labor in front of you on screen, uh, it becomes a little easier process to sit through. I, I still don't like it, Antoine. Right, let me tell you. Thank God for Matt, because I yeah. do not have to go back in there and sit in there. I, I lose my mind in that process. Listen, I, listen, I used to be an editor when I came out of film school in the old one. I said, listen, I used to be a great editor. Listen, I haven't been an editor since about 2002. 
I haven't edited in almost 18. You don't want no parts of it. I'm, yeah, about almost 19 years. I, I don't want no parts of post-production because it's a tedious process and it's very psychological and I, I can't handle it. But it's a very important piece because you got to see the end of the end result of the, the you know, the pro, the process. So, so after, um, well, during the time right now, you are directing, producing, and creating the show for Trick Dad that you still work with from, yeah. which I think is so amazing that you still working with the internship that you had yeah. from writing a letter. That shows the value Absolutely. of investing in yourself because you're really investing in yourself more than the company. And a lot yeah. of people don't know that no more. Talk about that a little bit more, how important it is to still invest in the internship and in, you know, bring a showing who you are and what you could do. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you, you said that what I try to tell, you know, I teach um, master classes in directing every year at, uh, at some local film festivals here in Miami. I've been doing it for about three, maybe going on four years. And um, what I teach my students is look, don't, we talked on this earlier. Don't expect somebody to give you something. You have to be able to, to sacrifice your time to obtain what you want, which means don't be looking for a check every time you step out the door. It's so it's so many directors out there that's willing to do it for no money to get where they need to be. So if you want to be great, it has to be something you're willing to do for no money. I mean, I'm going to tell you something. I say this to my students. You have to be willing to do this if it was no money involved. And I could honestly say to you, um, Beethoven, like, if I didn't have bills and houses and stuff to pay for I literally would get up every morning to do this film stuff for free. Like, you don't, I don't have to get paid for this. And trust me, the money I done missed in my career will prove that, like, listen, I done missed out on some checks to kind of just do what I love to do at the level I want to do it, whether I was going to make some money. If I was supposed to make $5,000 on a little small music video, but we need a, a big techno crane and it costs $4,500, Take my money. Like, I need that techno crane. Like, I'm good with that 500 bucks. I Why? Why do you do that? Because I have a passion, a passion for, for this filmmaking, and I have a passion for turning in good work. Even if it comes out of my pocket, I'm not going to turn in no mediocre work because that's just a disrespect to my legacy and to the client. So Yeah, very few people see it like that, yeah. Antoine. I think that's a powerful yeah. thing. But I want to finish touching base like, just to let people know, like, look, don't worry about the money. I just want to leave this with you, you know, on this topic. Don't worry about the money. And that's my advice to, you know, anyone out there that's aspiring filmmaker. Don't worry about the money. It's, it's going to come. And like I said, B, you've been with me over a decade. And you've seen where I started out from to now I'm on the show with a little suit, you know, some designer glasses on. The money's going to come. I promise you. I'm in my man's studio right now. I mean, we in a nice big studio, and I see where my man started from. We were doing interviews in one of my yeah. edit sessions at Rhino Studios one time. Yeah, back in the day. And now you got your own studio, and I just want to let people know the money is going to come. Don't worry. Absolutely. And I think for me, talk about the partnership also with studios, because a yeah. lot of guys, you know, now we create studios, but you started off with creating partnership with studios. Yeah. That, listen, that's another thing. I got lucky early in the game. You know, I... You know, um, you know, I met a few people in my life. Uh, my man, Lenny Gonzalez, he owned a company called Rhino Studios. And what I did was I was like, okay, Lenny, you have gear, you have cameras, you have editing facility. I got clients. We're going to partner. We're going to be a partnership. I know you charge this for this and you charge this for that, but I'm going to give you this 
and I'm not going to come to you one time. We're going to work for the next five years together. The next 10 years, we're going to work together and get this money together. And that's the partnership I developed with him. And then even with the studios where we go shoot these videos or movies at, you know, M3 Studios, I would tell the owner, like, look, um, I got clients, uh, high-profile clients I do videos for. Listen, sometimes I can't afford that $2,000 a day thing. If you give it to me for this, I'm going to make sure they come and do these videos. I brought Rick Ross to M3 Studios early on, you know, and now Rick Ross still shoots at M3 Studios when he's in Miami. He didn't know nothing about M3 Studios until I brought him there in, the, in, 2000, in 2007, 2008, and we did like two or three videos over there. So, you know, Try to my aspiring filmmakers, try to partner up with a production company. Try to partner up with somebody that own gear and you guys get money together. So mm. so now, you know, from the relationship that you invested, mm -hmm. which we're still on the, the topic, um, mm -hmm. you now are still working with with Trick Daddy yep. that you started off with Slip and Slide Record. Speak about a, a little bit about the show, Bitch, I Got My Pots. <laughs> oh, yeah. And how that whole thing... Even starting. Oh, yeah. Well, like I say, like you said, you know, Trick Daddy and I, I met Trick Daddy in 1996. I was working at a grocery store. And he used to come in there, you know, and, and um, bother me about helping him find some stuff. And then we got to work together two years later at Seven Side Records in 98. So I've been knowing him literally, oh, man, it's, it's like 25, 26 years. And um, so the show, Bitch, I Got Our Pots, which is like we're number one, like we want to, number one urban cooking shows out there, number one in our market. The show came about with um, one of my good friends, Corey Evans, and his partner, um, EJ, EJ Jenkins. And um, they came to me in 2019 about wanting to do a show. And I didn't really take Corey serious at first, only because Corey, a music guy, he's a, you know, he's an entertainer. He, he travels with Missy Elliott and Trina. And I was like, okay, whatever, y'all ready, let's do it. And I think he hit me probably about 10 times about, hey, let's sit down to watch this show. And I never really came to the meeting. It wasn't until uh, 2020, during the pandemic, where we, he was like, okay, Tom, I'm really trying to do this show. And he started making preparations to bring this show to life. So another year passes, 2021, he gets to studio. You know, he, he lays the foundation with Trick about, hey, he pitched the project to Trick about this show. and we decided we're going to do it. So another few months went by. It's now 2022, January, and we decided, hey, we can, it's time to shoot. It's time to do this. And our first show, we filmed uh, February 7th of uh, this year, 2022. And uh, we haven't looked back. We're about 30 shows in right now. And we've, man, we have had multiple offers from um, some networks that want to come in and either took, take over the show or partner up with us. And we haven't signed with anyone only because we just holding out for, you know, the best deal. So right one. the right one. And the show does well. We've had DJ Khaled. We've had CeeLo Green. We've had Rick Ross. We've had some of the biggest entertainers and actors in the world come on our cooking show. What's the process of even building that show out? Yeah, well, when you say building out, you mean like what the set or just like, the format? Well, the the not yes, a little bit of all that, okay. you know, from the your team yeah. crew, you know, the like building a show out. Yeah, well, basically everything starts out with the concept of the show, which you know Corey and EJ had a concept, 
And um, the next phase is, okay, we got to hire a crew. And basically, I took my guys who I work with in my movie and music video industry. Relationship again. I brought them in, and I was like, all right, guys, we now do TV shows now. And we came in, and we brought all our cinematic techniques from the movies, and we brought it to the TV show, to the web show, excuse me, for the cooking show. And this is why I think when you watch the Trick Daddy Bitch, I Got a Pot show, it's a little different than your average podcast show. We use cinematic cameras. We, we, we frame our angles different. Our sound is different. And, um, you know, I'm very proud of it. But um, from we have an art designer that we brought in to design the set. We had a white canvas. And when you look at the show now, it's like, you know, Timberland almost was in tears when he came to the show and he just seen the set because he said it reminded of his grandmother's house. So or the vibe did at least. And um, that's a testament to our art designer, our art director, uh, Carolina uh, Martinez, uh, Caro as we call her. And um, it, it, these guys, my crew, they really make the show what it is. And I got to give it to Corey, executive producer Corey, a.k.a. CEO, and EJ. These are great executive producers. They make sure we have all the money we need for the show. Uh, they make sure people know about the show. And they make sure we get the talent that we need to the show. So, you know, I got to give it to them. So them, so that part, one of the things you said that was so key is having the right budget. Because yeah. a lot of clients don't understand the importance of that. Yeah. Speak a little bit about that. Yeah, budget, you're going to never be on the same page with, <laughs> yeah, with your client never. with the budget because everybody think you can get everything done for 500 bucks. Yeah. That's a little running joke of the music video industry. Everybody wants to do a music video for 500 bucks, right. but they want to look like a, a Missy Elliott video. Absolutely. So that's a little running joke. But at the end of the day, listen, you have to always be honest with your client and present a budget to let them know this is what it costs to make your dream that's in your head or your vision that's in your head come to life. And you have to justify. You just can't say, oh, I need, you know, $1,000 for a light. You have to make sure you're going to get the use out of that light. And not just building for it because you just want it on a truck just in case. So um, it's important that you do budget your projects correctly and that you do fight for the proper budget to execute your project. Because otherwise, um, you're going to end up with a music video or, or whatever projects you're shooting with an unhappy client. And they're going to be looking for their money back. <laughs> so don't take my advice. So with... um. The, the business of content today, mm -hmm. um, like something, a show similar to Bitch, I Got My Pots mm -hmm. and other shows, what does the business side look like? So I know you you got to make the first investment, which is filming it. Yep. And then what's the, like, what's the process of that? Well, of course, yeah. You have to make your investment with, you know, like I say, filming it, meaning... You have to invest in your crew. You got to put a crew together. Make sure you got your payroll for that. You have to make sure your look is good. Invest in a little set design if, if you're doing a show. You know, invest, you know, bring in an art director to help you with that. Make sure your lighting is good. But before you even get to that, let's take it back just one step before you get to even bringing in a crew. People don't understand that you need to have a marketing budget for your show before you even get started. Even before you build your you, you pitch your podcast show, see how much it's going to cost to 
market and promote it. Find out what YouTube ads cost. Find out what Google ads cost. Find out what your ads cost, Beethoven, for you running it through your media network. People need to do the research on that. Put that budget aside first, then go get your crew, then go build your set, then go shoot your podcast or your TV series or, or your cooking show. And then the businesses mm -hmm. to, to place ads within the show yeah, or... Yeah, which I'm going to get into... If you have a product that a advertiser feel like they can make money on, you have a a, a, a host or you have an artist that could be coming on, or actor that been coming on. They feel like okay, uh, if I had my bottle of water on set of this podcast show in front of the mic while uh, uh, DJ Khaled is here, hey, I think I'll I'll sell a few more waters that week, and they will give you money to have that cup with their logo on it or that water with their logo on it to have on your show is there a, a process of even that where because i think a lot of people think they're going to get to the money right away where they don't really even build a brand or demar like all those things you said it before the advertisers even give you a dollar the money yeah you have to build a brand you know trick daddy he's been doing this 25 years he has a brand already everybody know what you're going to get when you tune into a trick daddy show and my thing is too you, even if you build in a situation with new people, people that maybe the industry don't know, if you got a good product and you got your marketing laws working for you where this product is getting the views, you can shoot a movie, you can shoot a podcast or a TV show with newcomers. If your views is there because you did your marketing and you did your, your networking, then the advertisers are going to come. And as far as advertisers, you have to sometimes do your own research. You have to sometimes call the, you know, the paper towel company and say, hey, I have a show that does about a million views a week across all our platforms. And we're a cooking show. And if you want to do some business with us, um, bring put your product on the show and cut us a check and um watch how more how many more products of paper towels you're gonna sell. So is that investment um a, well, is that investment typically for the people that's already established when they make that opportunity happen? Or is that something that people can start earlier on while they're building? Well, I'll say this. Usually, it's the product placement stuff or sponsorships happen with the people that's more established. But what I'm saying is you can still get to that same marketing, or excuse me, you can get to that same product placement bag if you did your marketing beforehand to get your views up. I don't think, for example, I don't think that paper towel company cares if it's Susie from around the block being the host of that show or it's Trick Daddy the host of that show. If Susie is getting a million views per episode and Trick Daddy is getting 900,000 views per episode and although he's been around 25 years, they're going to give that 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 product placement budget to Susie who's getting a million, that, that extra 100,000 matters. <laughs> You know, and they're going to give that deal to that person. So it's really about putting out good content. It's about marketing your show, product, or whatever it is you're doing to get those advertising dollars. You'll, I'm telling you, the bag will come. So do you believe that business is a very lucrative business for people to get into? Oh, absolutely. I'm going to tell you, let's talk. Let's take that paper towel company. Listen, 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 you know, you're my man, Beethoven. So I just give the game for free this, this one time. Thank you. Yeah. Listen. I keep yelling about the marketing company. We had a paper towel company that wanted to just offer us fifty thousand dollars just to have their, their, uh, their, you know, uh, uh, for the cooking show. 
just for us to have their uh, their paper towel things on our you know on on the cooking table that Trick cooked on, and you know we didn't take that deal because we know we you know we got multiple offers you know, which I won't say what the numbers are, but way more than fifty grand. My thing is. Yes, you can make a lot of money. Advertisers don't mark um product placement people or 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 or, or, or product placement people. They don't come with something like I'm gonna give you a thousand bucks. These guys come with fifty thousand dollars. They come with twenty five thousand dollars because you got a per show per 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 show, not for ten shows per show. They're gonna give you that fifty bands per show. They're gonna give you that ten thousand dollars or twenty five thousand. You gotta realize. That's a big bag to us because that's a lot of money for some paper towels. But these guys have million-dollar budgets. Down tee paper towels, they're going to spend $10 million on advertising this year across the United States. A commercial to run in, you know, nationally is going to cost them uh, $500 to $1 million. So but, now it's actually more yeah. affordable with this type of digital platform. Listen, I'm, trying to, I'm going to give the game for free right now. Down is going to spend $10 million to make sure that somebody in California, Idaho, Texas, Atlanta, New York City can watch uh, watch Sunday Sunday football that's coming on um, Sunday uh, coming up to make sure you see their product during halftime. They're going to spend $10 million for that. But to them, it's a little bit more lucrative if I give Trick Daddy $50,000 per episode and I'm going to get a million views on that. And on top of those million views I'm going to get um, for giving him a 50 grand, those same people are going to share that, that Trick Daddy show clip. Trick Daddy, not only we get about a million views on our episodes, people on Facebook share the link 3,000 so more times. So the visibility is the most important yeah. piece. So I'm get, yeah, I'm get, we're getting a million views for, that, for Downy Paper Towels. Plus, 3,000 more people are going to share with 3,000 other people. So now I got another three. That might turn to 10,000 people by the time those shares reach the, where they're going to reach. So Donnie is feeling like, okay, yeah, I can spend 50 bands a show on these people because I'm getting over. Trick that think he might be getting over. I'm actually saving millions of dollars by giving these guys 50 bands. So you believe that's the reason most people now yeah. should start creating their own content? Absolutely. And trust me. Listen, I'm only talking about paper towels. We have a cooking show where we have seasonings. We have paper towels. We have dish detergent where we wash our dishes in the middle of the show sometimes. Oh, we have we got a million dollars worth of product placement opportunities just on our cooking table. And that we decided we, we haven't taken advantage of because we got a bigger bag over our head right now. So now what <laughs> also what about the actual you guys selling your own product within the show? I'm gonna tell you something. This is the funny part about it. On our particular show, we haven't even tapped into our merch yet. And that's the thing. Merch is important, too. Your branding is important. We haven't even, you know, everybody wants the little Trick Daddy aprons. We haven't even set up, we haven't even set up for that yet. In that, in the word, that's coming, everybody. And merch is Which very important. I got important. you guys for all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm coming down. Oh, oh I got you. I got yeah. you. Yeah. But I, I think for me, I, I want to give the... The people, the information that content mm. creation is a very lucrative business. Yeah. Yep. And there's opportunities to make, you know, yeah. cash flow, real money in this. Listen, listen, I didn't mean to go long-winded on it, but I really want the people to know this is how you make money on your podcast show. No matter how little you think it is, this is how money, this is how you make video money. Video podcasting, especially. Video podcast. Excuse me. This is how you make money on your on, on doing video podcasting. And I didn't even tap into what 
YouTube is going to pay you once you monetize your account. I think after 10,000 followers, YouTube is going to give you a check. A thousand followers. Yeah, a thousand, thousand followers. YouTube is going to give you a check um, for getting a certain amount of views every week once your account is monetized. Instagram, um, I can't remember. Instagram give you a check, mm-hmm. but yeah, Instagram gives you a check. So guys, if you put a couple thousand dollars into some Google ads, so when people Google your show is at the top or whatever, trust me, you're gonna get that them little two thousand dollars you spend, which is probably every all the money in the world, because it it is to me. You're gonna get 10, 20, 30,000 potential worth of product placement business per show because you spent $2,000 for people like me to Google, you know, your show, Beethoven, and, and I see the first thing that pop up. So now I'm like, oh, okay, this show must be kind of popular. Let me watch it. It's going to make me watch it. And then I'm going to see the content, which you're doing great content on this show. Thank you. And I'm um, a big fan. And now I know, okay, I got I'm, this guy has a quality show. He has great content. Hmm. You know, maybe if I... He has a table. He can play something. He has a table. So maybe if I just give him a coffee cup with my company's name on it, you know, his his thousands of followers are made gonna probably gonna now go buy that coffee in the grocery store now that I had that's that they've been seeing every week now. And I'm telling you, they're gonna cut you a check. It's their job. Let me just say this. It's these product placement reps' job to Go find people like us, content creators, to give us a check. We don't have to beg. You just have to be visible to them. You have to just make sure they see you. And that's worth the investment. So consistency, visibility, yeah. of course, quality. Yeah, they're looking for you. Absolutely. They're going to come give you a check. Trust me. Down to paper towels do not want to keep spending $10 million every week. they rather give you 50 bands per show and they keep the change and they keep the change so they can do other things. They prefer to do that. You you believe that's, well, I, of course you do. That's where the industry is going now with these short form content yep. that is less investment than the $10 million commercial on um, Super Bowl. Absolutely. I'm telling you, this is where the industry is going. Even this is where it's at. I'm going to tell you something. Um, it, you know, I'm going to use Trick Daddy's Facebook page as a model. If you go visit Trick Daddy on his fan page on Facebook, he doesn't just put our cooking show clips on there. He has clips from just things from around the country, you know, incidents that might have happened because he gets meals and views on that, which equals out to visibility visibility, and a check. And so that's, that's crazy. So for, yeah. but, you know, a lot of people, you know, speak about this often. Content is a new currency. Yep, absolutely. You know, and for your industry, like, like speak a, I want you to add some value to that, how content is a new currency. I'm going to tell you something. You know, uh, the COVID era in 2020 kind of was the gift and the curse. It was a curse because, you know, you know, people lost lives and that's never a good thing. But it was the gift because if you're on the, if you're on the entertainment side, side of, the, uh, of the situation, you... That's when content. That's when people realized content was everything during those that you know the summer of uh, COVID when COVID went down, and this is when you know people were staying home watching TV and wanting more, and this is when you finally realize how important content was to um, you know to uh, to Americans or to viewers, and and I don't think this wave is ever going to go back. Before COVID, where content was like, okay, cool, somebody got a new podcast show. Oh, somebody got a new cooking show. Now, people are, like, looking 
every week for what's the new podcast show. That's why you got so many podcast shows and people getting into it because it's a demand for it. And I don't think it's ever going to go out of style. So do you think, so knowing that it's a demand, I speak with people often telling them these network companies, these large, they're looking for content. Mm -hmm. Speak a little bit about that, Antoine, please. I'm going to tell you, listen, um, it, you know, um, it's sites out, it's sites out there like uh, um, Fox Soul, you know, their digital content, you know, network. We've done some business with them. And just go look at Fox Soul and the content on there. They're, they're just one of the sites of hundreds out there that's looking to give you a check to put your content on there. If you got a good show, a good talk show, you got some good content to put out there, they will pay you to do what you was already doing just to put it on their, put it on their site. And you're going to get rich doing it if it's about you getting money. How does that deal work out? How did is licensing deal? Like what? Yeah, you basically, yeah, you, you already said it. But yeah, um, basically, when somebody like a Fox Soul come in, what they do is they'll say, okay, we love your show. We want to order just like a, a studio would do if, if we had a sitcom together. They'll say, okay, we ordering 10 episodes. And they'll give you a big bag to go shoot them two episodes that they that you are licensing to them. So if I'm doing ten episodes for Fox Soul, where I can't really give those two episodes to uh uh YouTube anymore because Fox Soul, Fox Soul's got the exclusive licensing. They can put it wherever they want to put it. And they decide to put it on YouTube, that's fine, but that's their ten episodes. So you making you basically licensing your product to them for uh uh for a check. And when when you say they're purchasing the ten episode, are they paying for the production? Also, they're paying for everything. They're paying for everything. Like I say, they're basically sponsoring the production for them to own the rights to it. So they pay for everything. Is there a certain timing they own it for? Could they own it all right, or that's all I, through contract? I, I, well, it all it all depends on what you negotiate. Yeah. So yeah. So it's basically if you want, if they if, if they're gonna own it for life, well, you make sure that's. That bag matches that deal. If they're gonna own it only for six months, then you know they'll your bag is gonna be for six months. You know, and uh, it's, it's up to what you negotiate. Is that what most people? The strategy. Let's talk about strategy now that content creators could do to get to a certain position. Should they create to get monetized on YouTube? Get product placements create licensing deals or is it all the above? I, I, you said the words out of my mouth. It's actually all the above. Listen, everybody wants to do a show. Usually when people do a show, they do it for a reason. You know, they, you know, um, you know, I watch your show to find out, you know, what's going on where I'm from and to get, you know, find out what's going on in the politics game or what's going on in business and finance. You know, I could watch your show and it's, it's a good deed to do the show you do. So people like me get the information. But at the end of the day, this is always a business. You know, the lights have to be paid in here. You know, our crew have to be taken care of in here. So you have to want to do all of the above. You have to want to do your show. It's not just you being a good person, giving me information. It's a business and you have to treat it like a business. And what is and that's converting into I think what I'm what I'm understanding you're saying is having the passion to bring value. With that bringing value, you, you got to yeah. do the business side of it. Absolutely. And then just understand different ways you can monetize it. Absolutely. If you have your business correct, and and you're going to be able to do this show for the next two decades if your business is correct. What's the point of doing this and not really having your business for this not for this incredible show not to be on the air 
six months from now. You know, that doesn't benefit anybody. So you have to come in with a great idea and, uh, and uh, um, with quality and with a business plan of, uh, of the, and the goal to want to monetize your show to keep it going so that people get what they need to get from it. So just having a passion to just, you know, to bring value is one thing. Yes. But you got to convert to the business side of it. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. So I'm I'm telling you, I think for me, yeah. I'm I'm very impressed by everything you've done, man, cuz mm-hmm. the artists that you work from Chris Brown to yeah. everybody that that you work with and to still be in the industry and to convert now going into the you know, not the podcast, but that 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 new wave of short content that's yeah. bringing value into that space of the cooking with with Trick Daddy, what you're doing. I think it's a game changer. Yeah. Are you looking to get into involved with more shows? Yeah, right now we have uh, a few shows we we developing. You know, we got the Trick Daddy cooking show. We have um, a couple of podcast shows we developing. Um, 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 one with uh. uh we may do one with Trina. We may end up doing one with Trick Daddy. Um, on my side, outside of the the media, the media projects I have on my filmmaking side, you know, like I said, I got some projects in development, and um, you know, I'm looking to bring a TV series uh, out here to Miami um, next year that um, that I'm hoping to get on the network. So we're in the development stage of that project. So. You know, we were excited. I, I know it's going to be all right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I know it's going to be all right, man. So, man, Antoine, man, thank you, man. Like I said, if there's, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would want to talk about that you want to leave on the table, you know? Well, just, just, just to close it out, you know, I, you know, I always uh, give my, uh, my students a saying too, you know, I always says, uh, being in this business and this may apply to life too. Um, it's, they say it's, it's who you know is what will get you in. But it's what you know that will keep you in. And I live by those words. You know, of course, knowing somebody can bring you into a situation. But if I bring you into a room full of 500, uh, I've got how you said, you know, uh, those, those, those executives that makes the Forbes 500 list, and you don't know how to move in that room, you're not going to be in that room very long. So you have to get into your space, learn your space, learn your craft, don't wake up in the morning pretending you a podcaster or you're a host. If you're not going to do the research and you're not going to do what it takes to become good at what you're doing. Uh, you can't just put a mic in your face and say, okay, now I'm a podcaster or now I'm a TV show host. You have to do your research and you have to practice talking on camera. You got to know how to speak into a mic. It's, in other words, you have to perfect your craft. Respect the game. And respect the game. And everything else will follow. That's what I'm trying to say. If you're a good person, people are gonna gravitate to you. If you learn your craft and do good work, more work is gonna come. Is 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 pretty much if you knock a glass of water over, something's gonna get wet. It's the law. It's the laws of physics. If you do good work, physics is gonna bring good people to you to do more business with you. That's just the way it works. And um, I would say just. Uh, network, be good to people, be humble. I got a post I put up on my Instagram a few weeks back, and it's just saying, be humble. And um, people are going to want to do business with you. See you, know? you Tuesday. No, absolutely. Good being on the show, bro. Thank you, man. <laughs> See you soon, good people. All right, cool. Peace. Man, that was a good show.
Yeah.